0: Welcome to the Spindrift Podcast. I'm Aoife and each episode I'm joined by someone from the world of cycling, particularly mountain biking, gravel and adventure cycling, who has a brilliant story to share. This episode I'm joined by mountain bike guide and racer Emily Horridge. She shares what racing and bikes were like back in the 90s, how she got into guiding as a career and the beautiful places she rides and what she's learned about training as an athlete in her 40s. She also talks about her return to elite racing and her plans to race several rounds of the UCI Downhill World Cup over 2023. Now, this episode was actually recorded in December 2022, but due to various personal misadventures, I've not been able to release it until now. So I am so sorry for the delay, but I hope you enjoy it. So uh, we've kind of known each other for a while now, but as with a lot of my podcasts, I like to kind of take things back to the beginning and just find out how you got into cycling and mountain biking in the first place. I mean, I've been looking back at some of, for example, your race history. I have some questions I want to ask you about how that's changed over the years. So let's start us off. Were you uh, big into mountain biking and cycling as a kid?
1: Yeah, I remember having a shopper bike when I was about eight and trying to pull wheelies on it. I don't know where this influence came from. I did see Junior Kickstart on the telly once or twice, which I thought was really cool. Perhaps that was where that influence came from. And then I think through the boys at school, so around about the age of 11 or 12, I kind of became aware of mountain biking or mountain bikes starting to become the big thing after BMX. I never had a BMX, I was never into BMX as a child. And probably like many young girls, I really wanted to, be, to have a pony and ride horses. <laughs> and that wasn't something that was in within financial reach for my family. So in a way, bikes became... Like a an alternative that I could just fully geek out over. It was more accessible for me because actually, you know, riding a bike is almost like a toy that nearly every child has or had at the time. That's fantastic, and also less, you know, slight, slightly cheaper
0: to run a bike than a horse. Uh, less <laughs> yeah. stabling costs, less veterinary yeah. bills. Although, you know, there's mechanicing that needs to be done. Yeah. So this was. Am I right in thinking this is this is sort of like in the nineties then that you got into mountain biking? So it was it was quite a new sport yeah. at the time.
1: Yeah, it was. So i got my first mountain bike in 1992 so i was 12 and so i i recently broke my wrist and i was at the physio and she was like aren't you scared when you're riding downhill and i said no because i've progressed with the bike you know back in 1992 my bike was fully rigid we were all like rocky bar ends and, and toe clips on our pedals and what else was pretty funny at the time well it's, this has come full circle now but it was really cool if you had a ball cage on your bike obviously that's back <laughs> in now but my development with the bike yeah and the sport it's, it's been Together, we've seen a lot of changes. I mean, the early days of mountain
0: biking, so we had like people just, you know, just becoming aware of it in the UK, it was just beginning to really take off. And I've like seen some of the old videos of bikes and mountain biking and mountain bike races back in the 90s and the noughties. I've just got so much respect for anyone who was racing bikes back then because those bikes looked absolutely terrifying.
1: (laughs) (laughs) The brakes on them, for example, and they were so small. Yeah. Yeah. I had a hardtail, a Kola Mooney Mula, which had these beautiful cantilever brakes on it, like cnc aluminium, like, you know, at the time, it was just like, whoa, look at those, they're amazing. And uh, the guy I was going out with at the time was, they're dangerous. The Shimano just brought out V-brakes. He's like, they're dangerous, I'm getting you some, getting you some V-brakes. And, and they were like, they were really good. <laughs> but yeah, we were still on rim brakes. And I remember watching, um, with Jason McCroy and Dave Hemming and and all of those guys just on repeat what would that have been like 95 yeah I was still at school so maybe 1995 like they were the gods of mountain biking as far as we were concerned and we just thought it was so cool and you look at the bikes they're on now and they look like cross country bikes and they were doing downhill on them it's just unbelievable <laughs>
0: and then going off some of the drops and the jumps they were doing and it shows you what you can do if you've got the skills mm-hmm. and the you yeah. know, the fitness and the drive to do it although yeah. I am glad that the equipment's better these days me too <laughs> And so what point did it turn from, this is something that I'm you know, i doing for fun, I really enjoy doing it, not that this has changed at all, but um, to something where you decided that you wanted to start competing and racing?
1: It was kind of an extension of the riding that we were doing. So I grew up in Street in Somerset in the UK and we had a local spot called the Cowell Hunts, which are these big bomb holes. I don't know if they actually came from bombs during the war, but they were big bomb holes. And I used to get up there and I'd be all the boys from school in the summer holidays, you could go up and there'd probably be 10, 15 boys from school and we all were just like oh can you ride down that steep thing into the bomb hole and then later on can you jump out of that thing in the bomb hole and then they were all talking about the cheddar challenge which was a big thing in those days like it, and cheddar was like 15 miles from home so it's just like oh I want to do the cheddar challenge and my friends are going it sounds amazing and, and at that point downhill wasn't really a thing and they were talking about doing cross-country well I never got to do the cross-country but I would have done just because start start whole you know whoever you're hanging out with things you hear you're like oh it's sounds amazing and then eventually downhill came on the scene and they were talking about that and then I wanted to do that so it just it was just three of my friends really just them making it sound so much fun but I wanted to try it Tried it And absolutely loved it And was like Oh this is it Also in those days There was no uplift And getting to ride Like a proper track That lasted more than 30 seconds You basically had to go to races To ride new places So it was a means to an end Really in that regard To go and tra- check out new places And ride tracks That your friends were telling you Were really good And yeah it was just like a, I don't know Extension of the social element Of riding at that time Because it wasn't club based at all So
0: so of all the different races That you, you, were, you were going to in, in those days and the different locations like what what were the ones that st- stick out in your memory as like your favorites whether it's the track or the vibe or the atmosphere or what went down at the event oh i've got some
1: really good memories of the nacc events which was kind of like our southwest regional series like places like bratton and um, where else do we go keem sydenham was a big was always on the calendar and i can't remember everywhere that we went but yeah places like the, i'm pretty sure it's bratton i first had a go on somebody else's bike who had SRAM on their bike SRAM gearing and I was just blown away like by the Chris Christmas of their gearing and basically I haven't had Shimano since because I think it's substandard <laughs> compared to SRAM <laughs> um, yeah like you know all that time ago like that sticks in my mind so clearly and King Sydney and there was a big road gap jump you know that was like that was I remember that being quite a what's the word like a, a progression point almost for me because there's this big road gap and I was doing it but I was doing it by kind of like plopping off of it. I was landing on the landing, but I. the boys said to me, look, you need to pick up off of that and then your landing will be smoother. I was like, oh, okay. So I did and it was smoother. And then I remember helping Monet Adams get over it when she was like 12 or something, like she was the youngest girl that jumped it at the time. You know, that was cool. So there's stuff that stands out like that. And then the Nationals they all just blur into one. I did so many of them and they were a different vibe, like a really different vibe, you know, like a bit more serious and that. And then later on I I did the Pierce series a lot and the Pierce Winter series. And I never did any Scottish um SDAs. So in my opinion, the Pierce Cycle series is the best series in the UK. <laughs> but I know that the people that do the SDA think that about the SDA, but obviously they're so far away from each other. Yeah. So, yeah, if anyone's listening who lives, you know, below, let's say, maybe Manchester or a bit lower, you want to do the best series in the UK, go and do a pier cycles race, downhill <laughs> race, they're
0: the best. <laughs> what makes them so, like, what actually happens at a race weekend back then and is it different to what happens now? Oh,
1: so back in, like, the late, it would have been the late 90s when I started doing a lot of races with my friends rather than having to rely on my parents for a lift. We had to push up. We had Yay. to push our bikes back up. <laughs> like, yeah, so I can't remember how many runs we would do in a day, but it wouldn't be very many, which is funny because actually we'd probably do three. And even now with uplift and, you know, here in France, when I go to the national races here, you've got a chairlift. I'll probably still only do three or four practice mm. runs on a day anyway, you do want to tie yourself out. So actually, you know, it's kind of working well for us yeah. back in the day that we had to push up. And the thing that makes the Peer Cycles races so good is – the vibe, I always say it's like having a picnic with your friends with a bike race on the side. It's so nice. Like everyone's super chill, super friendly. You just have a great time. They run their uplift like clockwork. You're not queuing for ages. The tracks are really good fun. You know, they're not usually hard and scary. They're just really good fun. The thing that's changed is, first of all, you don't have to push up a race. And secondly, <laughs> you can go on an uplift day as well to ride. You don't have to go to a race to ride track repeatedly.
0: Now, I had a look on uh, Roots and Rain, which is repository of, of racing results um and I, it seems like pretty much everyone's on there and i had a look at yours now you need to correct me if, if if this is wrong but it looked like you were at the 2003 world cup in fort william was that your first elite world cup yes i think it was right? yeah pretty and that was, was only the second time that the world cup had run in fort william and obviously it's been running yeah. every year since yeah um what was what yeah. was that like going to a World Cup when you'd sort of been competing at a sort of regional and national level?
1: Oh, it was just really exciting. I mean, obviously I'd raced at that track before. I'd done the national there, I think probably the year before. So I knew yeah. it was tough. It's never been my favourite track. I've raced there quite a few times over the years and it's hard it's really hard but it has got better actually because the start used to be well you know where now it starts in the in eye yeah. shaped thing and it's quite smooth at the top and then you've got a bit of boardwalk and then it gets rough well it used to start at the end more or less at the end of that mm. boardwalk but the way that they've put the rocks in to make those corners that wasn't there before either it was just wow. pure roughness it was just pure and our <laughs> bikes were not really made for it but anyway go, going back to the World Cup yeah it was just really exciting I was just like yes it's gonna be amazing we're gonna see all the pros and I'm going to see how i stack up and i'm competing at the highest possible level like looking back now i do not really know what i was doing but I, I had a good time trying my best to try and get down the track <laughs> it was
0: yeah so hard. i can imagine it's i've i've, I've, no, I've no, never been brave enough to i'm certainly not going to race anything like that there's a little few sections on there where like well, i could maybe just about get down it but certainly not uh, with any speed and any style at all. So anyone who can make it down that track, I have a huge amount of respect for. So that was the beginning of your, um, your world cup career how you know how did that go how did you get into it and how did you you know were you on a team were you did you have the support because you know when you look at coverage of the world cups now you know there's all these behind the scenes things and this is incredible like pit setups for a lot of riders where they've got like mechanics and boot warmers and like people cleaning you know their clothes and everything for them what was it like when you were doing it did you have all
1: of that stuff (laughs) no no i was just operating out of my car and I uh, know I was very, very definitely a privateer. I always have been probably on a Giant. Now there used to be, well, he's still around. Richard Vickery was a Giant. He worked for Giant and he had a girls team called Tricky Dicky Racing. And uh, and I was on his team for a bit. I think that would have, would I have been on that still in 2003? I'm not sure. Maybe that was earlier. So maybe I was on a mountain cycle. But anyway, so either way, I had a little bit of support from brands. So if it was Giant, I think I'd got the frame at a good price. And then if it was mountain cycle, I had a, I had the bike on loan from Windwave for two or three years I rode for them. Anyway, so that was me. I just, and then everything else, I just had to sort out for myself. So literally, I was doing everything, you know, sorting out my lunch, sorting out my accommodation, trying to do it as cheaply as I could. I remember staying at the youth hostel, no, like near Fort William once and you're surrounded by people but you're all alone I felt so lonely <laughs> it's <was> really hard <laughs> so then I tried to find people to come with me who maybe weren't racing but just wanted to watch or just yeah. to have some company at the end of the day just to make that a bit easier because I wasn't very I don't know like I, I was very good at talking to people um or asking questions or yeah i was definitely always felt a bit on my own at the world cup and i think maybe it never crossed my mind at the time but although mountain biking is an individual sport it's also kind of a team sport you know you yeah. do you can ask people questions and you can you can i mean obviously i discuss yeah. lines with people to a certain extent but nowadays oh it does help that the person i'm going to the races with is, is my husband so yeah. i can talk to him about literally anything but like getting down into the really nitty-gritty of lines and how you're approaching stuff i didn't have anyone to do that with and I didn't even know to do it so I'd say I was quite on my own but I was enjoying it I was loving it I was just yeah, no, I just I just it was just what I wanted to do. So it didn't matter too much that I was on my own and that's what I poured all of my money and time into. So so yeah, so it's tough, but it's just what I wanted to do. And I think without racing, without bikes, probably wouldn't have been to some of the places I've been to. Well I wouldn't have been, so bikes are why I've ended up living in France as well. So there's lots to be very grateful for, even though it was tough looking back. <laughs> but what an amazing
0: adventure as well to be sort of a young woman and going to all these races and this buzzing new sport that sort of has emerged and is growing and you've been there from the beginning of it being part of something that's that's got this incredible momentum behind and I know like in the early days as well there was a lot of a lot of excitement about it I mean there was mountain biking on like
1: mainstream telly sometimes as well which is like oh Mm. my god yeah I remember seeing the RAV4 series in fact that was probably why I wanted to do nationals I saw the RAV4 series on the telly and I'd been doing regionals and I guess the, the next natural step was to have a crack at nationals and see you know see if you're any good and I think when did I do my first national was have in 1999 or maybe 98 no not let's say 99 and um, yeah and it was yeah it was cool it was just really cool to be competing at a national level and going all over the country to check out new tracks and, and have uplift oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah that was cool actually you know that was cool and I guess that's why I went to World Cups. So, you know again it was the next natural step I did quite well at the nationals in those days like I my first season I was obviously in senior and I think I finished third in the series and then I moved up to elite the following year and i i was quite often in the top five or sometimes on the podium um i never won a, well i did win a national once but because I, I was the only elite that doesn't count, um so i never won a national properly <laughs> right, <yeah. laughs> but i was quite often up there
0: and like getting those kind of results you know if, if, if that was happening say you you'd hope that you would get support or sponsorship from brands did you did you have that kind of support at the time was there Was there that interest, or was the sport growing but still too small for that?
1: Yeah, there was definitely support. I mean, I, as I said, I rode for Windway for a bit. He used to import Mountain Cycle. They used to, I don't know if they, I don't know who imports Mozaki now, but they used to import Mozaki. So, uh, Mozaki Forks and, and Windway, um, uh, sorry, Mountain Cycle bikes from them that I had on loan and then I'd give them back at the end of the year. And later on, well, I had a break from racing. I think did I stop in about 2007 and then I came back in 2010 and I then was supported by Transition. Right. They would lend me a bike and then at the end of the year, I'd I'd sell it for them and pocket the difference I'll just give it back and later on I was I was supported by Transition directly so that was in 2014 yeah so but never never any money just products but it did mean that I didn't have to buy a bike which was obviously very helpful because I was working full time and pouring all of my money into getting to the races so not having to buy an actual bike was very helpful had a few I remember having a Fox had a Fox clothing deal way back yeah like in the late 90s that was pretty cool I was stoked you know because Fox was such a such a cool brand and i remember being like wow this is amazing and and then financially speaking i was on on my own just just working and spending it all on going <laughs> racing cool. i mean if you're gonna spend
0: <laughs> your money on anything that sounds like a pretty good way to spend it
1: yeah yeah it definitely kept me very happy yeah for
0: sure. So so you're also a mountain bike guide now currently and you, you run some amazing guiding holidays uh, that I've I've sort of seen and been coveting for a while now so hopefully when I save hmm. my pennies up a lot I'm going to come and bother you on a mountain somewhere. Oh, um, that'd be cool. I'm going to have to up my skills there because I know that you were very very fast and very good so I think I need to like upskill myself beforehand what made you decide to get into guiding then you know what is it that you enjoy about guiding
1: in 2006 i was asked by um flow T B, who were flow T B were in mausine anyway and i think it was their first year and it was run by um a lady called sarah Burden and her husband guy Burden. they've got very similar surnames <laughs> and they knew ben day who is from pool and he had seen me at the races um, I didn't actually know him but they had said he had said to them oh get Emily Horridge to come and help you do they wanted to do a, a women's skills week so they got in touch with me and off I went to Morzine in 2006 and did a week of coaching I think I did two weeks actually and um I was brilliant and I'd never been to Morzine before either and I'd never been abroad to ride my bike unless it was it a race was. so this whole idea of just going abroad to ride your bike and then not being the stress of a race was absolute. it was a revelation <laughs> it was like oh my word this is really nice even though I was working because I was teaching people how to how to ride their bikes it still wasn't anything like a stress as being at a race, and I was like, oh, wow, oh, wow. And then I discovered that you could be paid to be a guide because at that time you could guide in France still. They hadn't come up with you can't guide in France like the French didn't. I don't know. They just hadn't got across with the English at that point. (laughs) Um, So I went back there in 2007 and did a whole season with them working as a guide. And then I was like, oh, this could be another way to be paid to ride my bike. Because, you know, my dream with all the races, like obviously my dream was like I just wanted to be a professional mountain biker. I wanted to to be a racer, but that never quite came to be so yeah so it just was another avenue of pursuing my love of riding a bike so yes yeah, so i did that in 2007 and then i went back there in 2010 and did another season with them and then i ended up over here in Zarks, and i've been here ever since so yeah so it was again just a, a chance thing of somebody asking me to do something me discovering that there was a sort of another career path involving bikes and being like oh i really enjoy this let's 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 do it let's keep going so that's where that, how that came about
0: what kind of things do you do i mean is it individual Individual guiding for like groups a day at a time or is it does it tend to be sort of holidays and routes like what's your
1: preference I like to guide people for a Mm -hmm. week at a time because you get to know them and you can really tailor the kind of riding that they obviously obviously like to do I do occasionally do like day guiding for people but I'm not usually available to do that because I'm usually guiding people you know week-long clients so I basically run catered guided guided holidays here in well not in Arcs actually so in Lezarks area but I, I don't guide in the lift access area anymore because it's all on trail yeah. forks and you don't need a guide I, I like to show people stuff they can't get to by themselves so either they don't know where it is or they can't get up there because they need a van to give them an uplift or both or and then maybe they don't know how to link the trails together because I think sometimes people are like oh, I don't need a guide I can I can read a map but Sometimes it's not about the trail itself, it's how you get from that trail to the yeah. next trail in a coherent manner so you get the best out of your day. And so that you know that the trail that you've seen on the internet is actually a, a good trail for your yeah. preference or your skill level or and so on. So so yeah, so guys so I do what I call backcountry Lazarus trips, which are basically everywhere but Lazarus <laughs> <laughs> But in this valley. Um we ride on the on the hillside opposite the ski resorts and all the way down towards. Erleville and up into the Beaufort town there's a famous ride the Beaufort Ridgeline which has got a stunning view across this lake and you can see Mont Blanc oh, wow. in the distance and yeah it's really it's really cool and I really like doing that and I like to have people for a week as I say because I get to know them I get to know what they like yeah. to do and it keeps it really varied for me yeah. as well because I'm not riding the same trail day in day out every day week and so on and it's just nice to be out of the resort because it's quieter, you won't see anybody else on the trails and the trails are basically pristine. Whereas in the now they're still good, but because I've been here for ten years I can see that they've deteriorated yeah. and I'm oh I want to go right somewhere else. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah. So yes yeah, so I do that and I also run a trip which we call the Cathedral of Flow. It's in the Kira regional park, which is some people may now have heard of the Kira or the kiras because the Stone King really uh starts there. It's the first day or two of, of that race is, is in the Kira. Oh my word it's such a stunning place. So if you want to come yeah. to the Alps but you don't like switchbacks you need to come to the uh... Kira because the reason why it's called, why we called it the Cathedral of Flow is because there's not as many, nowhere near as many switchbacks and it's just really flowy. It's just such a lovely place to ride. Stunning views amazing trails and no one rides them Yeah so here, that back country backcountry and then down there, Cathedral of Flow and I have got another trip called the Temple of Tech which is based around the um that I did with Nanon it, we made a film about yeah. it which is super techy and involves a lot of hiker bikes so as you can imagine I don't get too many takers <laughs> for that one because it's a little bit niche so we, should we say well, that one's cool as well but it's it's a hard, hard work that one both physically and technically speaking they sound amazing That's also I'm really appreciating your
0: like the naming of them—that's like I love it. <laughs> Cathedral Flow, Temple of Ten. That's totally, totally my bag. Um, and I have seen video, um, some photos of of that region that you were talking about for the Cathedral of Flow, and it. <sighs> It just looks like nothing else. Oh it's amazing. So, so when you're not guiding, do you where do you like
1: to ride? What kind of stuff do you like to ride on? I really like riding out of my front door. actually. We <laughs> moved up into this little village in uh, last this time last year actually. so I live in a little village called Granier, which is above M or AIM, as an English person would pronounce it, <laughs> just along the road from borg sur So we're, we're pretty much opposite La Plan now. And um, oh, it's just really nice to just go out the door and just ride around here. Some really good trails. So obviously the last
0: couple of years have been difficult for a number hmm. of different reasons. We've had COVID, we've had lockdowns, we've had restrictions in travelling. And I'm assuming that um, quite a lot of the guests that would normally come on your trips weren't able to because of, because of that. But one of the things you did switch to is a YouTube channel. You've been providing some amazing kind of videos that sort of explain us on how to basically harnessing the power of your coaching and guiding skills into a video format. What was the idea behind that and and, and how is it
1: going? How do you enjoy it? I actually had that idea in probably summer or autumn 2019 ah. um, because I was never top 10 material at, at the World Cups or at the UWS, I always kind of thought of myself as a, as a fairly average rider with nothing much to offer which oh. is ridiculous um, because then a few people People said to me, "I think I guided somebody who, a lady who. You know, you can just sometimes tell that you've made a bit of an impression on somebody." And she yeah. did say that I was the fastest guide she'd ever had, and I think she was just stoked to be riding with with another female yeah and then another friend said that they found found me inspirational and i was just like oh i didn't realize i'm just i'm just riding my bike you know i just <laughs> humbly riding my bike not really thinking about myself. so this sort of you know percolated through the brain for a little bit and i thought wouldn't it be nice if i could take that inspirational element of myself yeah and give it a wider audience because obviously i live in this valley in france and there's not much going on here and you know i'm a bit limited in how far i can do stuff in person yeah i guess you know, like maybe I'll have like seven people for a week over eight weeks, but that's not really very many people. Um, and some of them are men and maybe don't see me as inspirational where, where a woman might, you know. Yeah. So I thought, oh, maybe I should start a YouTube channel. And I'd looked around on YouTube a little bit and I couldn't see that there were many female-led skills tutorials. Yeah. There are tutorials with women in, but there's usually a man involved as well, yeah. which is fine, but I thought it'd be nice to have the instructor as a woman. So, yeah, so that was what the motivation was for that. And then obviously we had lockdown and I was like well this is the perfect time I haven't really got anything else to do and I was a bit scared to do it I was I was really worried because you know people can be quite nasty on, yeah, on social media it, yeah. and I was a little bit concerned that I might put something out and people would be like no that's not how you do it no you've got that all wrong what, what do you know <laughs> <laughs> anyway that's not what happened I did you know I manned up I did it and, um, you probably should say I, sh- I womaned up, but I, I got on and did it and I shared it on, on YouTube uh, sorry, on Facebook, which is also quite scary again yeah, because I was kind of mm-hmm. and uh, and it all went down really well, which was really nice. So I just kept doing it and I enjoyed doing it. I got the very first video I did, I think it was How to Manual, and I'm very stiff, very stiff to camera because I felt as if the audience was there already because yeah. talking to the camera. And now, like, roll on like two years, I love talking to the camera, <laughs> it's like which is a bit of downfall for me because kind of one of the reasons that was that i wanted my videos to be kind of concise without too much rambling yeah because you know if you go on youtube quite a lot of the time you've got to watch a 15 minute video to find out what you want to know and it's like i ain't got 15 minutes I just want to have a quick look for five minutes yeah and then go and do whatever it is and i wanted it to be concise enough that people could go let's say take their phone outside with them and practice what it was and then be like oh what did she say and just find it easily Mm -hmm. in my video because my video is only five minutes long or six you know just not too long yeah that was the thought Behind that really And then it's Yeah it's, it's gone well And then I've started To branch out a little bit With other stuff Like um, you know Kind of taking Well not literally Taking people on the rides That me and David do When we go on holiday But, but I have done A few videos like that Where it's like Just us going riding And what happens Because we, we <laughs> Well we didn't realise This this is another thing Our friend said to us That we were hilarious Because we're like <laughs> Just chatting to each other Like random stuff <laughs> While we're riding Down the trail And making silly noises <laughs> And apparently It's quite <laughs> Entertaining. So we're like, oh, maybe we should make some videos of when we do just go riding. So, and then branching out from stuff like um talking to Ben Plenger about training when you're old or older, know, like just tips on bike setup and stuff like that. Stuff that I think could be really useful for yeah. people that's going to help them either be better at riding or have more confidence on their bike. It's been really hard to keep up with it this summer because I've been really busy. I've been doing a lot of skills coaching in Morzine and I just. I didn't organise my not on purpose well obviously not on purpose <laughs> I didn't organise my summer very well so I'd be like in Morzine for a couple of days then back here guiding for a week then back to Morzine for a couple of days and it was just back as I'm it's like two and a half hour drive oh, from here to Morzine it's quite a long way Yeah, um, but it was really good had a really good time like doing all that coaching in Morzine doing some guiding over here It's nice to mix it up as well um, so yeah I didn't get so much time to make videos this summer but, but uh, we're back on it there's some stuff well what, I'm now trying to put them out once a month excellent watch
0: this space everybody and I think one Mm. of the things that's really nice is that natural style one that it's good to have um, more content mountain biking content um, involving and produced by women definitely we just I think we still need more representation of that because it's It's not like it's getting better, but it's still not there. Um, And also you just you have a wonderful natural style about it. Like (laughs) you just kind of like you make it seem like it's so much fun and make it seem doable. And like, yeah, I want to listen to you telling me about this stuff because because you're like, oh, yeah, you've got such a nice way about you. That's that's really entertaining, engaging and informative. And yeah, you you put the information across there really well. Although that video clip that you posted fairly recently of riding the ridgeline and then crashing (laughs) did scare the bejesus out of me. (laughs) you are
1: obviously okay because you're here talking to me now but that looks sketchy it wasn't anywhere near as sketchy as it as it looks actually <laughs> that is the power of uh, of a 360 camera you can make it look terribly exposed when it isn't quite as exposed as it looks but it was funny because that section of like off-camera rocks I was absolutely sure you could ride across them and I guide that route quite often yeah um but in the summer I'm you know, when I'm guiding, I'm like, it's not really the time to be seeing what I can do. You've got to look after my after my people and make sure they're safe and, and not put myself potentially put myself in danger. Yeah. But I'm not absolutely sure you could ride across it. Turns out it does not have any grip at all, not <laughs> none whatsoever. Oh, no. Like if if you'd have been there, you could have told me what sort of rock it was with your <laughs> geology knowledge. But um yeah. So I tried a different line and we were slightly flatter it and the different line worked perfectly. So that was good good to get to figure it out <laughs> exactly you you learn something for future guiding we
0: get entertainment Indeed. it's like a win-win situation yeah. all around yeah um yeah now you you've just alluded to this and it's something that i'd like to talk more about and i know that's something you're quite passionate about is is training as a as an older woman. Um, so, you know, a lot, again, a lot of the content that we see is based around sort of, you know, women in their like teens, twenties, well, women and men in their teens and twenties and thirties. But, you know, as, as you get a bit older, you kind of begin to change a bit. And you've been doing a lot of work and research into this alongside um the coach Ben Plenger um who I've trained with before is a great guy can you tell me a little bit more about you know what you've been looking into and what you've been finding
1: out and learning this came about because when I got to about thirty nine. I went riding one day and just felt a bit weak. Um, I wanted to move a relatively small log off the trail and just felt a bit incapable. So I decided it was about time we uh, sorted that out. And, and since then, so now forty two, and I'm starting to become very, a bit perimenopausal as well, which is a little bit annoying, but it happens to everybody. Oh yeah, me too. Here it comes. <laughs> so yeah, just wanted to, I like started to ever so slightly worry that I might not be able to continue to ride how I want to ride. And at that point, I wasn't back into racing. I was still just sort of riding for pleasure and guiding and what have you. And then I heard a podcast. I think it was on performance... Oh, I can't remember the name of the podcast, but anyway, it was another lady called Amber Nibben, an American lady, and her coach, and she went, attended the Olympics at the age of 46 and came fourth. Now, unfortunately, I can't remember, she's a cyclist, but I can't remember what event that was in. But I was like, wow, she's 46 and she came fourth at the Olympics. That's that's amazing. So anyway, I looked listened to the podcast and, and they were talking about how they tweaked her training to take account of her age. Yeah and they were just talking about how maybe the, the build, like the, the build needed to be a little bit slower compared to a younger athlete you know she maybe needed to take a little bit more time for recovery they talked about some mistakes they made like they have this massive training block and basically almost ruined her for quite a big big event but she just about came back on form like on the day Wow! yeah it was just really interesting i was like okay it is possible all right okay so how do we do it and then whether i did a google or what i did but i did find i I read a paper from from 2015 by professor steve and some other people and they were looking at the they wanted to look at the effect of aging now quite a lot of research done on the effects of aging is done in sedentary people so there's other confounding factors you know maybe obesity just being unfit like stuff like that which can can confuse whether or not what they're seeing is down to aging or if it's down to Pop health. So they did some research. They found 125 cyclists aged between 55 and 79, I think it was, who were audax cyclists. And there were some requirements as to how much riding they needed to have done in in recent weeks, and in what time and what have you. And basically, the women had to have ridden something like 60 miles within the last three weeks. They are in a ride within five hours, and the guys had to have ridden 100 miles within six hours or something like that. I can't remember. Mm -hmm. If they compared the VO2 max of a I think it was a 75-year-old male from this study to a sedentary 40-year-old male yeah. about the same Ooh. so by by continuing to ride okay they definitely saw a decline in their vo2 max compared to you know what they would have been when they were younger but it kind of bought you time in a way it kind of gave yeah. you like a, a a sort of athletic age as compared to your cr- chronological age so, oh that's interesting and then the next thing i read was that they took samples muscle muscle samples and in a sedentary elderly person the difference is really obvious uh, there's like lots of fat in the muscle and lots of sinew and what have you you take it from an active old person and compare it to a younger person's muscle and you can't tell the difference but if you're looking under the microscope which is obviously what they did they couldn't say with certainty oh this one's the young person and this one's the old person i was like oh okay so basically if you use it you don't lose it which obviously we all know but you do kind of wonder don't you like as you grow older because most people are you know they've got jobs and responsibilities and children and I have a job but I don't have many responsibilities and I don't have children so that gives me a little bit of an advantage in that I do have time to do quite a lot of exercise and my mm-hmm. job involves me doing exercise as yeah. well so I was like oh okay okay this is cool Okay, I, I think we can we, we don't have to give up on, on ourselves when we get into our early 40s or yeah. even as women as we approach menopause as well so yeah and then I've done a little bit of research on the menopause as well because like my sister-in-law for example she yeah she's a bit older than me she's going going through it and and my mother-in-law doesn't seem to be able to tell her give her any tips wow like from what you yeah. going. yeah my mom's got a few tips for me which has been really good but you still kind of if you understand what's going on in terms of your hormone levels and all that sort of thing it's like oh right okay that makes sense and oh this is why i'm seeing this change Ah, oh. so yeah no it's just been really interesting to reassure myself that i can continue to exercise at a level i want to exercise run my bike at a level that i want to ride it at and so on I just need to take care of myself and actually do some training on the side which just kind of where Ben comes in and, uh, and yeah we can just keep going I mean this is this is excellent news
0: and uh, you know as if you needed uh, you know a motivation to do it anyway in the first place The I think also it is interesting like you were talking about sort of um, menopause as well and sort of fitness as you age, that there is more information around that because it sort of almost felt like you'd sort of reach a certain point and everyone's like, oh, we're not that bothered. There's no information. You might as well give up now because life is over. (laughs) And menopause, well, that's this mysterious thing that happens and Mm. like no one ever talks about. So at least now that there's more information out there, more people are talking openly about this and there's more support available, which is great because I too am heading into this and I'm less nervous than I think I would have been if this had been happening like even like five, 10 years ago, because there is more information out there and you kind of have a bit more of an understanding about what you need to do if you want to continue to, you know, mm-hmm. be, be fit enough to ride your bike for as long as possible. Can you tell me about some of the stuff that you've been doing with Ben then? He's very good at, at kind of like tailoring programs to individuals.
1: Yeah. So, well, I met up with him actually when I was in the UK back in the spring. We made a video about training kind of into your 40s. And we were just talking about, yeah, it's the same thing as I heard on the podcast I mentioned before actually about, Thank you. Kind of need to accept that it's going to be a slower build. It's going to take time. Maybe where uh, somebody in their twenties might be able to kind of smash out deadlifting. I don't know, double their own body weight way more quickly than than you can when you're forty. You just or in your forties, you just need to take a bit more time over it and be consistent and sort of listen to your body really and accept that you're going to potentially have to take more more recovery days and more rest if you've gone really hard. I'm actually following his downhill program at the moment, and then we're going to get into a tailored program in in January, ready for this coming season but that's really good and I really like his programme because I think it's quite thorough I think that he Gets you to do exercises which look after well. They're not just about purely doing the big compound lifts like deadlifts and squats mm. and things. um It's all about looking after joints and, and what have you as well. Particularly knees. There's lots of stuff that he gets you to do, which is going to make sure that you don't end up with funny muscle imbalances, which are going to affect your knees later on, which is quite cool. And also stuff which is really good for your posture, which I haven't seen in other in other programs. Which I I think it's good. I just think it's thorough and there's a good attention to detail, and and I've really felt the benefit from it. David did his over 40s program and David is not into the gym, doesn't, (laughs) never ever wanted to do anything like it. He absolutely loved it, found it really Mm -hmm. beneficial. He was doing it so it's something like three times a week and it takes him about forty five minutes each time. So it's perfect for people that don't have much time. Because yeah. David is an electrician. He actually does way more work than me in the interseason. Well, he's out right now. So he doesn't have as much time as I do to train. So yeah. it was really good. So you've gone from um you got into mountain biking when you when you were
0: younger, you loved racing, you had the opportunity to race World Cups, you did well, but perhaps you know, as you said, it didn't quite take off for you. More recently in the last few years, you were sort of investigating this whole idea of like how can I you know sort of maintain my fitness how can I progress my fitness and skills which leads us on to more racing for you because (laughs) you've you've gone right back into that like big
1: style yeah I I so years ago I always said that I would do Master's World Champs one day. Yep. And by the time and but they were in for many years they were in South America. There was a few years where they were in Brazil and yeah, that was well out of my out of my reach financially speaking. So mm-hmm. oh, we'll, we'll wait for them to come back to Europe. Anyway, by the time they came back to Europe, I was not into racing at all. And then it was coming up to my fortieth birthday and I thought, wouldn't it be a cool way to usher in being forty if I go to World Champs and see if we can win it? So that's What that was, I was like, yeah, let's, let's give it a go. And I, I just started writing for Scott. Which meant that I had the opportunity to get hold of a gambler downhill bike. Yep. So you know things were sort of falling into place in that regard. And then obviously the Masters World didn't happen in 2020 because of COVID. Yeah. So I was like, oh well, we'll just put it back to next year. In fact, it was you that said to me, we'll just do it next year instead. And I was like, oh yeah, it doesn't matter, but <laughs> it's not my fortieth year anymore. <laughs> so we went and did that. And I and I wanted to say, so when I was racing, when I was younger, I didn't know how to train and I didn't train. I rode purely on talent. And, which is probably why i didn't get very far and i just didn't know like who to ask i mean i did ask somebody and she gave me like a woman's like toning program which oh, obviously wow. didn't she didn't understand the sport and i didn't really realize or understand yeah so anyway so i did try but it didn't work out <laughs> so this time i was like right okay there's way more information now i'm going to sign up to a to a training program and we're going to get we're going to get in in shape for this so that i feel like i've done everything i can to be prepared yeah. for this race I can put my best into it and hopefully win it so that's what i did went to the race won the race so yes <laughs> awesome. so yeah so became a master's world champion in 2021 of the well i was in the 40 to 44 age category but i did actually set the fastest woman's time of the day so full world oh champion. yeah totally <laughs> 2021 so that's cool and i enjoyed it i really enjoyed it I stopped racing downhill in 2012 because I'd started to put too much pressure on myself like I had probably unreasonable expectations as to positions and, and things like that stuff that you can't control you know mm. and and, uh, and I'd really fallen out of love with it so I just stopped so anyway that really reignited really my my interest in racing so I thought oh I think I'll do some I think I'll do some French nationals next year yeah and I was like maybe if I get some UCI points I could maybe think about a world cup <gasps> like that's how well oh. into it I was, I was like oh, yeah yeah wow. let's go let's go. So I quickly realised that it was a lot easier to uh, to race over here if you've got a French race licence, so I got that mm-hmm. sorted out, which is a little bit harder than in the UK. You have to have a medical certificate to say that there's nothing wrong with your ticker and you're all good and, and what have you, whereas in the UK you just pay the money. <laughs> so, yeah, I had to had to get that sorted, but that was okay. I In the winter, not every winter, but some winters, I work as a driver for a company called Cool Bus, and I do airport transfers. So done that for a long time. In the more recent years, I put podcasts on and if the customers don't like it they can listen to their own music because quite often that's what they do anyway so I'm like listening to podcasts about racing and all this when I'm driving my customers and I'm like oh that's a little nugget of information and there's so much information in the public domain now if you are a prolific podcast listener that you can take that and try it out at your own races which is something that there's so many things I did not know when I was racing before it's unbelievable like it was all there I don't know why I didn't know it I didn't know to ask or whatever doesn't matter but I do know it now we yeah so we were planning to go to Crankworks, but unfortunately we, we couldn't go in the end um, we couldn't go quite so far away as Innsbruck but we could go to I think it was the first round of the French Nationals and I was coming back from finale because I've been doing some guiding for MTV beds listening to a podcast where um, Ollie Morris who you may have heard of who's coach for the Mondraker team said oh yeah when you go to the races you can't expect yourself to suddenly be like this amazingly fast rider when how would that happen you just need to ride like you normally do like with your mates and I was like oh yeah that's so (laughs) blindingly obvious but I've never thought of that you know like I go to a race and I wouldn't necessarily be thinking oh I've got to be like 50% faster than usual but there is a sort of expectation that you're at a race and you're going to go as fast as you possibly can so I was like oh I want to go to a race I want to try this out I just want to go to a race set off in my race run and just ride like I usually do so yeah as I say there was a French national that weekend and and you can enter those they don't fill up like English ones and you can enter them quite late so I was like right David we're going to this race I want to try out this thing that Ollie said (laughs) so off we went and to my absolute surprise I qualified fifth. Brilliant. I could not believe it and I'd felt like I did a quite a good run and I felt like practice had gone really well as well and in the end I finished up sixth. yeah I was so surprised and so pleased as well so there were other things that I'd heard in other podcasts um before that but it was just that one thing where I was like oh my word I really want to go to the race right now and try that out yeah so other things I kind of realized you know was having an object and an objective in your practice runs and mm. not just blindly just lapping the track which I definitely used to do yeah and also just planning your practice like saying to yourself right I'm going to do four runs or I'm going to do depending on the track, you know how yeah. rough it is or how long it is. Yeah, I always used to do full runs in practice like years ago. Yeah, it was just because I thought that that would be a way to know how it would feel. Mm-hmm. But it's actually much better not to do that because you can stop and watch what other people are doing in in areas where you're not sure how to handle it. Yeah, and something I did at the race, at one of the races this year, there was this section, and I thought I'm not quite sure what to do, so I stood and I also got my phone out and recorded what they were doing. Um, even though they were elite men, they were really quick. And maybe doing lines that maybe I wouldn't feel comfortable on. But it was really cool to have my phone out and look and be able to rewind and be like, Oh, right, he went there and then he went there and then da 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 and also just realising that actually, yeah, you see elite men going flat out and hitting certain lines. Mm-hmm. And, you know, because in the past sort of 10 odd years, we've been able to watch World Cups on the, on, on the Red Bull stream. Yeah. You realise that, yeah, the elite men are doing these lines, but the elite women who are the absolute top of their game, they're still not necessarily doing the same lines as the men. Whereas when I was racing before, you kind of just saw fast people and you're like, that's how I need to be to be yeah. that good. Yeah. But it's not maybe realistic to compare yourself to an elite man who is going to probably lay down a time that's 40 seconds quicker than the best woman. You know, it's just not the same so yeah so just loads of stuff to like try at the races just change the way that i do it and actually have a plan have a process tick things off and yeah and it's been really enjoyable so and also because i'm now no longer pursuing this this dream of becoming a a, a professional mountain bike racer it doesn't matter what my result is so all i'm doing is like ticking off the hard bits on the track ticking off feeling good on the track ticking off get, you know, following my plan and it feeling yeah. good and, and so on and so forth. And I'm just letting the result take care of itself. And it's just like, so, oh, this is so much fun. I'm just I'm just enjoying the challenge. And it's just I absolutely love it. So it's still stressful. Yeah. And sometimes well, the last race I did was at Valberg, and I remember a few days before being a little bit like I used to get, being like, "Oh, I don't want to go to the race." Oh. And then I went, and the first run, I was like, "Oh my word, I don't know why I came to this race." Awful, fell off, and had a little cry. And then yes. after that, absolutely loved it, had a brilliant um, time, and I really want to go back next year to to like dial in the track a bit more. Unfortunately, I'm not going to be able to because I'm working. But the fact that I feel like that is yeah. just like so refreshing and so good and so fun. It's just like, oh, I love racing. I'm back. <laughs> It's like it's brilliant watching you because you are like clearly
0: so excited and so passionate about it. You're making me excited to sort of see how how things go for you. And you have got some. Is it okay to talk about it? You've got even bigger plans for
1: next year, (laughs) which is really cool. Yeah. So at the start of this year i just wanted to uh i just wanted to see if i could get back into elite so when i came sick at the very first race i was just like oh oh i've done that that's that's me in elite like so i started off so in over here i'm very definitely in the master's category and 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 although i am kind of in elite i get a master's podium even though it's just me which is quite funny Mm -hmm. so at that first race i had a a, a white number board which meant i kind of had normal person's practice Mm -hmm. and and our practice was earlier as well and then because i qualified fifth, I went to see the commissaires and said, oh, could I possibly practice in the A group practice, please? Because then it's a bit more like the time of day and so on. They said yes. But at that point, I wasn't allowed to practice in elite. But then having got that result at the next race, I got a yellow number one and I was allowed to practice in elite. Yeah, so it's just like, oh, oh, I've done that. Oh, I thought that might take all summer to get back up there. Yeah. And yeah, so that was just like, oh, wow, okay. So that was that one. And then we had the race at Lazarex. and practice went really well. Unfortunately, I threw it all away in the first corner and didn't get a particularly good result. But the race went really well and yeah. I was really disappointed over the result. But when I reflected on how the whole weekend had gone, it went really well. Yeah. Like it was good. And that track's long. It's like probably nearly as long as Fort William as well. So yeah. it's pretty tough. It's not maybe the same level of physicality. It's quite physical but not quite the same level yeah. but certainly quite long and then we went to Valberg and and I got a fourth so once I'd got my sixth place and kind of got back into elite my next aim was I really wanted to get a top five because then you get on podium. Yeah so I got a fourth at Valberg I was absolutely delighted that was like my next little can yep. I do this so just in the back of my mind still trying to just like tick off my little plans and little processes and what have you uh-huh. and not worry about the result and just leave that to take care of itself. Yeah but yeah I did that and then and now I'm like oh I'd really like to go back to a world cup and just see just see <laughs> what happens if i approach racing in this new to me way yeah that i never did before how would i stack up you know would i yeah how would i feel you know like i'm you know i i'm i don't expect to qualify because it's so competitive now but but yeah so next year i am going to go and do uh lens Hyder and Neogang gang for sure awesome i am too scared to go and do bad soul <laughs> it looks <laughs> so gnarly and i'm kind of like it's the start of this of the guiding season I don't want to break myself yeah. um, so I'm probably not going to do So, well I'm almost certainly not and then I need to score some more UCI points to do the races at the end of the year but there's two races in France at the end of the year we know that Ludenville is one of them it is rumoured in the French circles that the other one's going to be Leger Ooh. which would be really cool because I'd love to ride yes. that track I wanted to ride it after World Champs but unfortunately I broke my wrist just before World Champs so I didn't get a chance so yeah but I've got to get points so that's the plan first two world Cups not expecting to qualify just want to see how it goes just you know follow the process work on my race craft just you know see how it is to be racing at that level again and I feel a little well I'm starting to get over this feeling now I feel a little bit like a bit of an idiot for being like in my 40s and being like yeah I want to go race World Cup because it feels like you go and race World Cups to seek a bit of glory and it's just like well what what right do I have to do that when there's all these young girls that are trying to make it you know like people like Michaela Parton who are still struggling to, to get the backing they deserve who really do have a future in it whereas I'm just playing but then we're all there and you do the race and if you don't qualify you've not taken anybody else's spot have you yes. so it doesn't matter so yeah so that's that's it yeah that's what I'm gonna do so here yeah, it's exciting times <laughs> and it's fascinating because like as you said before you've clearly
0: got the natural talent for it and what you might have been missing before was that information that access to the information the kind of training that you needed now you've got that so hmm. what's gonna happen if you bring those two together and I'm I'm really excited to see how you get on you're going to be sharing it with us I'm assuming like YouTube
1: like Instagram yeah definitely yeah definitely so I'm hoping that we might be able to produce something quite professional looking but if we don't then I'll just be doing some kind of race vlogs a bit like what Bernie Kerr does I guess Um, but with my own little style on it and uh, yeah no definitely going to put something out so people can follow along and see see how I'm getting on how I'm handling the stress (laughs) and um, yeah no it should be cool um, and I really want also to encourage people of my age, whether they're men or women, but yeah. particularly women, that if you've got some what seems like a ridiculous dream to go back to the highest level of competition, don't worry that you're 40, whatever you are. Just crack on. Just do what you need to do to get yourself there. You know, I had to do that. Na- well, I just wanted to do the Nationals this past year anyway. And along the way, I've gained the UCI points that mean I can enter a World Cup. Yeah. So, you know, just do what you need to do to get where you want to be and just see where it takes you see where you end up but don't don't believe that just because you're a bit older that you can't do it anymore just give it a go and see what happens absolutely so, I am
0: fully on board with that I think yeah just <laughs> go for it if you're interested and you're passionate and you you know you feel like there was something you've got unfinished business or you've discovered a new interest just go for it like absolutely mm. best time is now it's always now yeah Emily just to finish us off um, can you tell us like so if people do want to like follow follow your world cup journey or your general mountain biking antics? where can where can they follow you Where's the best place to to see what you've been
1: up to for more day-to-day kind of antics it'll be on instagram so that's m underscore horridge, and then on youtube you'll find me at well youtube.com forward slash emily horage if you fancy coming on one of those guided trips we talked about you can look up emilyhorage thanks
0: for listening to the Spindrift podcast If you enjoyed this episode, please do leave a comment or racing as it really helps more people discover the podcast. And don't forget you can find out more and listen to previous episodes on the Spindrift podcast website.